Okay, are we ready? Can you all hear me? I'm losing my voice because I have a cold. So I'm, I've medicated myself extensively to get through this lecture. So if I seem a little jovial, it may be from drugs. Okay. Um, so t today I'm going to ask for some, this is going to be very practical on like patients you might see, and I'm going to show a lot of pictures of patients I've actually taken in the e UCI ED. There's only a few that aren't mine, but most of the pictures will be mine. You can show that the kind of pictures you could see with, or you could see with STDs in the ED. Uh, so I'm gonna, there's going to be interspersed during the lecture some multiple choice questions that are going to be there not for teaching. And so they're not the questions at the end. They're still the three questions at the end for the quiz. Uh, and I usually have handed them out in the past. They're actually going to be on, this, on the PowerPoint. So you may want to get your paper ready, but they won't be the same questions. And so I'm going to be calling on some people uh, that I think maybe uh, know some of the answers uh, <laughs> to answer some of the questions as we go along, okay? So, um, so I'm going to gear myself. First, there's two sort of classes of syndromes you're going to see uh, in uh, STDs. Uh, it's going to be the presentation of a genital ulcer. Uh, it's, called, it's called the genital ulcer adenopathy syndrome. And there's also urethral discharge. And I'm not really going to talk much about uh, PID and things like that because that's more something that we have discussed in the OBGYN month, okay? So I want to mention that um, during World War II, the, the War Department, they had, before the Department of put out many, many, they had scores and scores of posters they put out for the soldiers to prevent them from uh, getting a, a venereal disease which might inhibit the war effort. And you could go online and find every poster that the Department of the War Department put out. There's over 50. And I'm going to show some examples of this during the lecture. But not a single one I could find was ever geared toward women soldiers or for women who had to go work in the factories to take the plates of the men who went to war. They're all for the soldiers. And they all talk about having relations with other, like the loose women and nothing about loose men or anything in this. <laughs> so these were true. They were like spread posters all throughout the probably the U.S. and the foreign areas where the U.S. was, U.S. soldiers were in England and so forth. Okay. <laughs> the girl on the right's trouble because she looks pretty good, doesn't she? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. So now what, now what happened in the current day is that <clears throat> a lot of the public health posters for STDs are geared toward men who have sex with men because they, they've been a recurrence of syphilis in the United States, and it's almost always among men who have sex with men. And so this is a uh, poster on a bus in San Francisco uh, about the Healthy Penis Campaign, which is done by the health departments in Cleveland as well as, this is like on posters in San Francisco, but also Cleveland does this. And so they, they're, trying to, they're trying to eliminate syphilis, essentially, uh, and there's like cartoon books you can buy on this. As a pub this is put up by the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Okay? No, that's true. Go to the San Francisco Department of Public Health website and you find a whole series of comic books you can read on this. <laughs> so here's a case presentation. And then I'm going to show this case and then we're going to show a picture of what he looked like here. So let's have... Um, <clears throat> Why don't we um, I'll just assign a uh, resident for this, and I'll read it off. Um, who uh, wants to take this? Let's ask an R3.
because they think they might know the most, and if they have, need help, they can ask an R1, who might know more because they're closer to medical school when they might have had <laughs> microbiology. When we were so, in this patient or when we learned about this? When you learned about it. Oh. Okay. So how about Randy? Okay, so a 22-year-old, this is a true case that I saw, and, and you'll see his picture here. 22-year-old male, healthy college student, he went to a nearby four-year college, so you can see there's only a few in Orange County, four-year colleges. He was on the water polo team, <coughs> and how many colleges have water polo teams in Orange County? There are probably a couple at least, right? And he complained of pain in his penis when urinating with a yellow urethral discharge for three days, and he thinks he has an STD, but he's never had one before. So when you get talked to him, he has no systemic symptoms. He denies having a rash or any inguinal adenopathy or pain in the inguinal area. And he said he's healthy, he never had an STD. He says he's sexually active only with female college students, several in the past few months, like three. And they're like casual girlfriends that he meets off and on again. He doesn't really have a steady girlfriend. Uh, he's one of those good-looking uh, sort of like tan uh, surfer guys who's sort of muscular because he's a water polo player. So. Uh, he doesn't think they have any symptoms, but he doesn't really talk to them like every day, okay, his girlfriend. So <laughs> he doesn't live with them. He, has like, he lives in like an uh, apartment with some other water polo players. So he says, he, you know, I think I have an STD after we looked at him. He said, but, you know, I don't think my girlfriends are sick. Could I have got this from the swimming pool? Well, some other guy had GC or something, and it, was, and it was in the water, and I got it. Or maybe from sitting on the toilet seat in the locker room, okay? Okay, so before I show you his picture, any other questions you might want to ask him? Probably not too much. He's a healthy person. He hasn't taken any medication for it. So here's his actual uh, exam. This is a close-up here. So when you examine him, he had no inguinal adenopathy. There's no ulcerations. And the only thing he had was a very purulent yellow discharge from his penis. Okay, so now uh, Randy. Uh, so you have this, you have his history. What do you want to do for him? So I could, because I don't, I can get a sample right there, I would just get a culture um, and send it for PCR, GNC. Um, PCR, good. So it's not a culture, though, it's a PCR test. Right. right. And how would you collect that? Well, I don't need to actually go down the urethra, it's right there. Um, yeah, so you collect it on a swab. Uh, you. What kind of swab would you collect it on? Because gonorrhea is... <laughs> Gonorrhea is killed by certain kinds of swabs, and it's very so you'd and it's a PCR, so it doesn't have the culture. But it may not be important for the cult, for the PCR, but for if you're doing a culture, you got to make sure you have the right swab. So, uh, yeah, but you're doing the PCR, so um, you could probably just uh, take the swab you would use for. I brought some props here, probably the same one you'd put the. This is actually a chlamydia transport media, and you'd probably just take one of the swabs that you take from the vaginitis kit and you could put it, you could do that and put it in there. Yeah, I, do, I left those out, but it comes with swabs. So you'd put it in here. This is a chlamydia transport media. So it would stay in there and you could also then do the PCR for chlamydia. You could also, now what have usually would have happened is that the nurse got the complaint, didn't look at them and already sent a UA from triage. And so you have a UA back and it might show 10 or 15 white cells. So you could add a PCR of the urine onto that. It wouldn't be get it right away. But it might be more sensitive if you actually had the pus there. Uh, so let's say you send that off. You're gonna, that's only set up like every third business day, right, at UCI. So you could send it off. It's a very sensitive test, that PCR test, chlamydia and GC. Anything else you might want to do? Any testicular pain? or? No, he has a normal genital exam except for the discharge. 
There's no ulcers, uh, sign of epididymitis or inguinal adenopathy. So while we work, why, so gonorrhea and chlamydia are at the top line of the center. You can get right. more of the pyramids, uh, urethritis with the gonorrhea, but you can also get it with... Yeah, you're more likely to get the really thick yellow discharge from gonorrhea and more of a mucoid watery discharge from chlamydia, but there is an overlap and you could have both diseases because chlamydia is actually more common. And so he might have acquired both. Now, could he have acquired any other diseases, uh, you know, at the same time or with other partners uh, that he's had for the past few weeks or months? Sure. Uh, I would uh, ask if he, so it's unprotected sex? Yeah. Uh, so potentially HIV, uh, syphilis. Yeah, so you could do this. You could do a, a serologic test for syphilis and HIV. Uh, but you could also say, well, you could tell them to get it later. That's okay. But if you, a lot of young males might not show up. I probably would do those. And you're not going to get the results back unless it's the rapid HIV. But you could also say you need to go follow up and get it at your college. You could probably go to the college health center and get that later because he had no clinical symptoms or signs of that. Um, there was a question about why there are two swabs, two culture swabs in the kit. Um, yeah, one, isn't one narrower than the other? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, what the difference is. I think the metal one's better for going in the urethra or small orifices, and the other one, maybe for the cervix, doesn't matter as much. Is that right? I don't know. I'm going to talk about cold. So, what if you want to make... The shaft, that's meant to go into the urethra, the male urethra. Bigger ones would be cervix or yeah. where you put it. But, but you can also do a, for uh, women also with, with gonococcal uh, cervicitis often have urethritis without symptoms. So you could use that for a urethral swab in the female. We don't usually do that, but that's also highly sensitive too. So what if you want a rapid diagnosis? Gram stain. Gram stain, right. So that you can do a stat gram stain at UCI lab 24 hours a day and they have an answer in about an hour after they receive it or maybe less once they receive it in micro lab. So if you have a purulent yellow discharge like this, uh, what's the sensitivity of the gram stain by the microtech for gonorrhea? Oh, so don't answer that now. I'm going to talk about it later. But it's, you're going to find it's extremely useful for making a rapid diagnosis. It doesn't tell you like sensitivities or something like that. And you could miss it, but it's, you can see it's very sensitive. Um, so now you have him, uh, let's see, you've sent off all those tests, and you don't have the rapid test. Yes? Are the gram stain, which one do you use? Uh, you, you can use it. Uh, it doesn't matter. That's okay, because you're not doing a culture on it. So I'm going to mention cultures at another time later. Let's say we're not doing a culture. And I have a culture of GC here. I'll show you how to do that. But, um, or I'll dem I won't demonstrate it on anybody, but I'll <laughs> show you. It's done because there are indications now for doing cultures because there's increasing resistance of antibiotics, including ceftriaxone and azithromycin to gonorrhea. And you often have to do test of cures if somebody comes back. So what's the transport media for a for a it, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you could do a, if you're doing it only a gram stain, you could use the, if you're doing, the, you could do the red swab if you're doing only a gram stain, because you don't matter if it kills the organism. Because uh, some of the, the transfer media could kill gonorrhea, but it, you could do the red swab. Uh, you could also do probably a viral culture swab, as long as it's on a swab in a, like a tube, one of those tubes. Uh, this is the viral culture swab, but probably the red tube. Just, you know, the red one we have for like throat cultures or wound cultures, the same thing. 
but only order it. You should label it from urethra, purulent discharge, rule out gonorrhea. You want to smear the pus on the slide. So you don't uh, no, it. no, they'll smear, they'll smear it for you. The point is you don't yeah. dilute it in liquid and actually send the pus. Yeah, you don't want to put it in, in this one because it's too diluted. Right. They're going to take the swab and put it on a slide <clears throat> and then do the gram stain. Yeah. But if you're going to culture, you have to call them out the chocolate ball, right? Yeah, this one here. I'm going to mention more about that later. How to do that, okay? Because the, uh, if you get an old guy like, say, me and Dr. Schultz, Dr. Langdorf's too young for this. But in the 1980s, <laughs> gonorrhea was extremely common in the ED. It's actually more common in the United States now than then, but maybe they didn't come to the ED as much, but males with gonorrhea. And we did cultures routinely. It, like every day in the ED, a resident would do two or three gonorrhea cultures. And you'd be an expert at how to warm this up under your armpit and all that. I'll talk about that in a minute. So now, so you have him there, and uh, let's say you think he has gonorrhea or chlamydia. You sent those tests off. What about treatment? And let's ask an R1 to help you out because that's not correct. The CDC changed their gonorrhea treatment recommendations in August 2012. 250. 250, because it's becoming resistant, and you need the bigger dose, 250, and uh, it's recommended to do, you could do the, the doxycycline, which is fine, but it's probably better to do the zithromycin one gram in the ED, because its compliance is not a problem, and there is some doxycycline resistance. But I'll tell you later that you're actually combining those two drugs together, not just to treat chlamydia. It's to give two drugs for possible gonorrhea, and it prevents antibiotic resistance by giving two drugs it's effective against. So I'll tell you that later. So that's good. So you're going to treat him and discharge him, and he probably should go to the student health service and be followed up. And what about his, what should he tell his sexual partners? They should get, probably go to the student health service and just get impure treatment. Yes? If it is doxy, is the latest recommendation 10 days or 14 days? Okay. This is not PID, though. Yes? For azithromycin? Yeah. Uh, if you're giving it by itself, you have to give two grams at a time. I'll mention that at the end of the gonorrhea oh. part. Let me mention that. So here's a question for, uh, let's have a R1, or how about a med student? Any, how about our med student from Puerto Rico? Okay. So let's go through this question. This is hard, so that you can, R1 can help you. This is multiple choice. This is for the teaching. It's not just a quiz about this. So what, which one of these following statements is true? Which one? Most men complain of, with gonorrhea. Most men have testicular pain. Most men complain of dysuria or urethral discharge. It depends on the strain of gonorrhea, and most men are asymptomatic. Yes, most men are symptomatic, unlike women, okay? So that's good, you're correct, okay? So here's more about gonorrhea in men. Let's have the, uh, uh, how about another student? Any volunteers? Unless you want to do another question. You could <laughs> seem to know a lot about it here, huh? Okay. <laughs> this is the last one on the men. Which one of the following is true regarding gonorrhea symptoms as men? Painful urination is always present. Purulent discharge is always present. Some men have no symptoms, and testicular pain and epididymal tenderness are often present. Some men have no symptoms? Correct. 
but the majority are symptomatic, but some men are asymptomatic and they could transmit the gonorrhea to a female or a male partner without symptoms. Okay? But most men have sympt are symptomatic, unlike women. So most men, some men have no symptoms. So let's do, this is gonorrhea in women. Uh, let's have a woman answer this, a uh, different one. How about Erica? <laughs> different one. Uh, so, which one of the following statements best describes the clinical signs of gonorrhea in women? Most women complain of a purulent discharge. Most women complain of urinary symptoms. Depends on the strain, and most women are asymptomatic. Most women are asymptomatic. Correct. <laughs> it's an easy one, right? So, this man, this, we diagnosed with maybe gonorrhea, we'll see later. Um, he said, oh, his female part, he go out and find, they don't have any symptoms. Do they need to be tested? Yes, because they... One of them probably has it. In fact, maybe he gave it to the other ones after the first one gave it to him. So most women are asymptomatic. So the transmission of gonorrhea, it's very effectively transmitted from male to female and a little less likely to be admitted go vagina to male, but that's another possible thing. Rectal intercourse also could transmit it. Uh, oral sex can do that. And perinatal transmission in the birth canal from mother to infant can do that. Uh, used to be a common cause of blindness in the pre-antibiotic era for babies. Uh, so there's also, when you have gonorrhea uh, and have a sort of a inflamed urethra, there's increased transmissibility and susceptibility to HIV infection. Um, so about a, one quarter of men with, with gonorrhea in their urethra are asymptomatic, but it's higher among women. It's about 50 or maybe a little higher than 50% are asymptomatic. So when we want to test for gonorrhea at UCI, we, now there's, if you go to different hospitals, they have different molecular testing. We use the PCR test, and this is what it's called when you go to try to order it. It's a polymerase chain reaction, but it isn't the only molecular test. If you go to another hospital, they have different molecular tests. Uh, the PCR is perhaps the, the most specific and most sensitive, but you could use a different kind of a test. So it's most sensitive if it's done on the first voided urine. So if you divide the urine into three streams, the first voided, uh, the middle stream, like the clean catch, and the end, you really want it on the first voided to be the highest sensitivity. But since it's so sensitive, it's still pretty sensitive on the midstream, which is what the nurses have usually already sent a urinalysis, which they shouldn't be sending urinalysis on young men until you've examined the patient, because UTIs in young men are very rare, and so it's more likely that they have urethritis, and you'd like to see the urethra when they haven't urinated for a while. And so you'd ask for the first voided urine stream, okay, um, for the PCR test. And then you could also collect the PCR test on a swab and put it in the chlamydial transport media, as we have here, to preserve it uh, for the PCR test on other sources. So you can, this is for the female, the cervix, uh, the vagina, the urethra in females, as well as the males, and you could collect it. I'd recommend the Calidia transport media here. There's also a viral transport, too. And you have to uh, use, you don't want to use any wooden swabs or aluminum wired shafts. So, uh, because the, um, this is also for culture, too, it can destroy some of the gonorrhea and the chlamydia if you use the wrong swab. So, don't take an applicator stick or a Q-tip that has the wooden swab. Okay? Use the swabs in, like, the kits or the vaginitis kits. They're usually okay. So that test is very sensitive and specific, but they only set it up about three times a week at UCI. That's why don't ever tell the patient to call back in one or two days for the result, because they don't show a partial answer 
and you, you say, oh, they never sent it, did they? Because you can't find a partial result. Like another culture says, negative at one day, we're holding for seven. They don't stay that till it's finally back. So you better uh, wait. Usually I have them wait about three business days, so weekend doesn't count, and then call back for the results. Now, uh, what about a culture? What is this model? This is called uh, transgrow media. And this is for culturing uh, gonorrhea or for meningococcal, for uh, meningococcus too, from a site that is already colonized with other bacteria. Like you're getting the culture from the urethra, pharynx, or anus or something, uh, or the cervix. There's other bacteria. So Neisseria doesn't grow very fast. And it'll be overgrown by normal flora. So what this has in it is chocolate agar, which makes the the Neisseria grow really well. It doesn't grow on regular blood auger as well. It has four antibiotics in it that inhibit the four different ones here that inhibit the growth of other bacteria. Turns out they also inhibit about five or ten percent of gonorrhea. But if you don't use those, you just get overgrowth of other organisms. And it has CO2 in it. And so uh, is CO2 heavier or lighter than air? It's heavier. So uh, Dr. Pitts is an old guy, too. He probably knows about these cultures. <laughs> well, you were practicing in the 1980s. Gonorrhea seemed more common then. What? Before that. So um, we used to use a lot of these. This is not a new thing. So this is, we used to keep these in the ED refrigerator and have a whole bucket and full, go through a big box in a week. But now they, they kept them in the micro lab. So they come refrigerated. Uh, to keep them to the last a year or something. So gonorrhea is very sensitive to heat, so you, I mean to cold, so you have to heat it up to room temperature or body temperature. So, and uh, Dr. Schultz would probably show you how we used to send these up. We put it under our armpit and walk around for five minutes. It would be warm faster or do it like this in our hands. So you don't want to collect it, a culture, uh, when it's cold, okay? And so this has CO2. So what you do is you take a swab. Uh, one, you could use one of the swabs from the vaginitis kit. Uh, but don't use a one of the don't use uh, you're going in the urethra usually so you don't want a big swab like the red one of the bacterial cultures so it goes in there you put it in the urethra take it out and if there's no you could do a discharge one if there's coming out but usually you have to go in about a centimeter and troll it around and you get it out so when you open this up uh, you want to keep it upright so the CO2 stays in the bottle if you do it like this the CO2 runs out so then you take the swab and you just swab it over the surface. You don't, swab, you don't uh, dig it into it. You just swab it over the surface. You throw out the swab, put it on the top, and you label it on the back where the label is here. You put this patient's label so they could see it grow. And then you send it down to the lab as a gonorrhea culture. Okay? So that, uh, that's also fairly sensitive. And there's increasing indications for doing that now because of increasing rates of resistance. And so especially if someone's failed a treatment, you really need to do a culture as well as a PCR, because they can do antibiotic susceptibilities. And I'll mention more about why that is, that things are becoming resistant. Uh, if you have any questions about this on your uh, clinical shifts and you're not sure, please give me a call. I could tell you how to do that. It's pretty easy. So here's an example of the bottle, but I show you in person. Anybody want to, you could pass this around if you want. That hasn't been used. <laughs> <laughs> It's called Transgrow. Okay, many manufacturers of it. It was invented like in the 1960s by Thayer and Martin. It's called Thayer Martin Auger with CO2 and uh, chocolate auger and 
inhibitory antibiotics. So let's look at the gram stain for gonorrhea. Here's a gram stain of urethral discharge. And what do we see here? These are white cells, right? Nuclei. And then what's the, what are these little things here? They're inside the cells in the cytoplasm, gram-negative intracellular diplococci, which is typical of gonorrhea and meningococcus. Um, and so let's ask a question here. Let's see, Alyssa, question? statements about gram stain and gonorrhea diagnosis. Let me, I don't know if they can hear you, so let me talk for the microphone. All of the following statements about gram stain and gonorrhea diagnosis are true except. So one is false. Gram stain is reliable to diagnose gonorrhea in symptomatic males. Gram stain is reliable to diagnose gonorrhea in females. Gram stain does not have a high sensitivity in asymptomatic males. Gram stain is not recommended to diagnose pharyngeal gonorrhea. So one is incorrect. I like A and B as being true. C, gram stain does not have a high sensitivity. I don't know why that would be false. I'm going to say D is not true. So wait, 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 let's ask for, ask for, so wait, you want to ask for help? Oh, wait, no, C. Sorry. C is <laughs> false, you're saying? Yeah, C is false. Wait, have I totally confused myself? <laughs> All the following statements about gram stain are true, except. Anybody else have an answer? I like so this is the one that's false. Okay, they're all true except that. Okay, so symptomatic males got the gram stain is really it's like ninety five percent sensitive, and it's rapid. So you could tell somebody right now you have gonorrhea. Um, especially if they have that purulent discharge. So it, if they're asymptomatic, though, about 24% of males, they, it's not very sensitive. All the culture, could, PCR could be sensitive. And a gram stain is not reliable in females. There's too many other organisms that look like that that are normal flora on the cervix, so it's not accurate. And then it's not accurate for the pharynx because there's another Neisseria in the pharynx that look just like gonorrhea, okay, on the gram stain. So it's symptomatic males. It's a very good test. Here's another gram stain showing gram-negative cellular diplococci. In their, so they're not outside the, the cells. They're in the cytoplasm. So it's very accurate on urethral specimens in males who have a discharge. So male gonococcal urethritis, they typically have a discharge that's sort of yellow, pretty thick, tends not to be watery, and it's, they often have dysuria, and it, it can be clear, but it's usually cloudy and yellow. So only about a quarter asymptomatic. That means you could see somebody with another STD, like they have a genital ulcer of herpes or syphilis. They should probably be checked for gonorrhea without, even without symptoms because they could easily have acquired that. And then incubation period for gonorrhea is fairly short, just a few days, although in some, since it can be asymptomatic, it's often not sure when it was acquired. So what about epididymitis? Here's an example. That's obviously caused by, in STDs, chlamydia is the most common in gonorrhea. And then other people could have gram-negative rods, right? So um, what do you think, uh, let me ask Rod here, uh, what do you think about, you've heard about the dividing line between at 30, age 35 and, over, and under and over as a dividing line between uh, GC and chlamydia as a cause in under 35 and coliforms and pseudomonas in men over 35. Do you think that's a legitimate dividing line? And how was that ever devised? Uh, I don't know how it was devised. I don't think it's that... I actually thought that the, the age was more like closer to the 40s. So I'll show you in a second uh, that, so epididymitis, unilateral testicular pain is usually one side. It's not very common. 
as a complication, but we see it in the ED as a complication. And there may not be any symptomatic urethritis at the same time. Okay, so you should be checking that. I won't be talking much more about that except for this. So this maxim that the dividing line is 35 came from one study of 50 cases. Journal of Urology, 1979, probably before some of you were even born. And so the article didn't state that there's a dividing line at 35. They stated that most of the patients under 35 had STDs, and most of them over 35 had E. coli or pseudomonas. And they had all ages here from like 18 to like 70, okay? And there are only 50 cases, and that's what it came from because they put a dividing line at, at 35, and it's all, it doesn't matter. You should assume uh, a male of any age could have anything. So uh, it depends, for example, young men who are 18 who have sex with other men have a high rate of not only having STDs but having gram-negative rods, okay, because they have anal intercourse. Also, old men uh, could still get STDs. There's a lot of widowers out there who play around with younger or older women, especially there's, uh, there's, lots of, there's a lot more uh, widows than there are widowers out there, and so there's a lot of sex going around in retirement communities, and so there's STDs are going around in retirement communities. So the age, you, if you have somebody with epididymitis, I would recommend you treat for both gram-negative rods and STDs, and so usually you can get away with that if you give a quinolone and hope it's uh, GC-sensitive you know, to quinolones, but you're going to test for GC anyway on the PCR and get a urine culture every time in any age. Uh, and if you're going to treat epididymitis with a quinolone, remember not to give Cipro because that's the only one that doesn't work against chlamydia. So you've got to give levofloxacin or ofloxacin. That's what the CDC recommends. There's some other ones you could give. We don't have on our formula like moxifloxacin, but you, you don't give Cipro unless you're going to give another treatment for chlamydia. So let's look at gonococcal infections in women. Most are asymptomatic. You get cervicitis, which can be asymptomatic too, or sometimes symptomatic with a vaginal discharge. And urethritis, you could have inflamed urethra, and it could present like cystitis and have a few white cells in the urine. And so if you're giving Keflex for seven days for the cystitis, it's not going to treat their gonococcal urethritis you've missed here. So gonococcal cervicitis, the symptoms are pretty nonspecific. Vaginal, little vaginal discharge, sometimes no symptoms, sometimes dysuria, which may be related to urethritis. And they could get PID, dyspareunia, that kind of thing. Uh, you could also see the same kind of thing from chlamydia, too. So uh, mucropurulent discharge on the cervix is usually found in these cases. You could have an abnormal cervix exam, but many of these patients you have, you find clinical cervicitis on your exam have no symptoms. And it's unclear what the incubation period is, but it's probably under 10 days. So here's an example of gonococcal cervicitis they took from the CDC. But this could also get this from other things, like whether it's some kind of vaginitis spelling on the cervix or whether it's chlamydia. could be the same. So most women uh, with gonococcal urethritis are asymptomatic. So they can have a positive PCR of the urine for gonorrhea and they have no <coughs> symptoms. And they, could, they may have a few white cells in their urine, like 5 or 10 or maybe none. Uh, and many of, most of the women who have cervical gonococcal infection have urethral infection, too, without symptoms, actually. So if you look at, let's look at some other uh, places. I'm going to show you some pictures of some of these things later. But anorectal infection, usually acquired by anal intercourse, and it's usually asymptomatic, or it presents with minor symptoms of mild anal irritation, 
painful defecation, some changes in bowel habits, occasional <coughs> rectal bleeding, occasional discharge, pruritus. So how, many, how many men have you seen or young women lately who you th have come rectal bleeding, a little irritation, and you think they have some hemorrhoids, inner fissure, you're not quite sure? Uh, we usually send them out with, you know, sits bass or topical medications. Go see your doctor. But I wonder if some of those, we didn't ask about having rectal intercourse, whether they actually have an STD, and we didn't check for it. So you should ask those people about having anal, anal uh, sex. And then probably before you'd send them out is probably do some tests, like the PCR test on the, on the anal canal for GC and chlamydia, and maybe herpes too. Um, so pharyngeal infection. So you can get gonococcal pharyngitis uh, from oral sex, and it's usually a very mild type of pharyngitis. It doesn't mimic strep throat or mono. It's very mild, low grade, and you may have some exudate too or may not. So it's very low grade, and you might think it's a virus because it doesn't seem you know, sort of subacute. They shouldn't have a cough from it. So you can culture that. You can do a PCR test on the cervix, on the uh, pharynx if you want. Uh, but I, my pref preference is usually you get a history of their sex, men having sex with men, uh, and uh, that's the more likely thing. And then I'd probably do a culture on the transgrow media of the pharynx, okay? Because the treatment you use for like strep throat doesn't work for gonorrhea of the pharynx, and they're just going to transmit it. So conjunctivitis, I'll show a picture of that in a minute, but it's usually relative auto-inoculation, where they get it from their urethra to their fingers and then rub their eyes. And uh, I've only seen uh, a few cases in my career of this confirmed, and every case was a male who had so much discharge from one eye that he had to carry either a cup or a big towel just covered with pus. So if you see somebody, this, the pus is just constantly dripping and dripping, dripping and dripping. Think of gonorrhea. And so it's usually going to be someone who's a young, sexually active adult. I've only seen it in a couple, in a few males, not females, but it's potential. So remember that it's not going to respond too well to topical treatment, like polytrim solution or quinolone drops, uh, and you need systemic treatment. And I'll mention, I'll show you a picture of it later, and we'll discuss the treatment. Uh, disseminated gonococcal infection in the 1970s and 80s was very common because in that couple decades there, the strains of gonorrhea that, uh, there were certain strains going around which aren't really circulating now that are resistant to the action of human complement in the blood. And so you'd have a asymptomatic infection at the site, primary site, asymptomatic, which would go into the blood and it can't be destroyed by the, by the body's complement system, which the normal gonorrhea is. And so it seeds out into different, like the skin and the joints and the periarticular areas. That's very common uh, in, in the 70s and 80s. It's really uncommon now. I'll show you some pictures of that in a few minutes and what to treat it with. So let's look at antibiotic susceptibility, yeah, antibiotic resistance to gonorrhea. It's uh, fluoroquinolone resistance is now widespread. So when I was a, actually a resident in medicine or ID fellow, we used to give people with gonorrhea three grams of amoxicillin once by mouth, and that would be the cure. And, that, and then before that, we used to give a single shot of procaine penicillin. And then that would be the cure. But now it's all resistant to penicillin. It's become resistant somewhat to doxycycline and tetracycline. Uh, most of the cases, if they're not resistant to penicillin, are, are not, are, uh, their MICs are so high that you need such high doses, it's best not to even give a penicillin. And now we're seeing that some isolates are becoming resistant to azithromycin. And it's, it's uh, more likely in Japan and Europe. 
um, and even sporadic cases of decreased susceptibility in the United States, not resistance, but are occurring recently. And it's especially seen in, uh, in right now in Japan, France, and Spain. They're having actual resistance to ceftriaxone for gonorrhea. And I suspect since gonorrhea has become resistant to every antibiotic we've used for it uh, over a few decades, it's likely that in 20 years, all the gonorrhea is going to be resistant to ceftriaxone. So now we're having increased resistance to cefixime, and so in August of 2012, the CDC changed their recommendations to eliminate cefixime as oral as a single dose for gonorrhea, or even with multiple doses, and they upped the dose of ceftriaxone to make sure it's 250 milligrams and not 125. So here's some, they, the CDC reported on over 32,000 isolates of gonorrhea, looking at ceftriaxone, cefixime, uh, MICs, and here's the percent, this is only 1%. You can see that cefixime has become, like in 2011, up to 1.5%, and it's rising. Ceftriaxone, this isn't resistance, but increased MIC is still low, but it's increasing. So I likely in five or 10 years, this is gonna rapidly rise, especially the ceftriaxone. Uh, so they modified, the CDC modified the treatment recommendations in August 2012. So right now, if you had a patient with uncomplicated gonorrhea, of the cervix, urethra, or pharynx, what would you recommend? I think we mentioned that. Uh, Kenny, did you mention that? I think you had the right answer. 250 milligrams of ceftriaxone. Anything else? For the gonorrhea, forget the chlamydia part, is to give the, the zithromycin one gram. That's for the gonorrhea, not just the chlamydia. And I'll show you more about two antibiotics together could inhibit resistance against that. And so what if a patient's allergic to cephalosporids? They say, oh, I had... A, I had hives from ceftriaxone for an ear infection I had four years ago. So the CDC has new recommendations for that. Just give it. Uh, no, that's not what they recommend, but that's possible. So if they, somebody said they had a, usually people haven't got ceftriaxone, but they said they had a penicillin allergy and it wasn't anaphylaxis, it's probably okay to give it and just watch them long, like 30, 50, 60 minutes in the ED or the clinic. So I'll mention more about that in a second. So here's the new CDC recommendations for uh, people who aren't allergic to any antibiotics is to give ceftriaxone 250 plus a gram of azithromycin or the doxycycline. They're preferring the azithromycin because you don't have to worry about taking anything later that they're not going to take. Also, uh, there's more resistance. So the reason for this is not just to cover chlamydia. They're combining two drugs for gonorrhea, even though there might be sent resistance here. So these are together two drugs together. So I'd recommend the top two, ceftriaxone and azithromycin. And so what if they're cephalosporin allergic is to give two grams of azithromycin orally, plus you have to do a test of cure in one week or a little longer. It doesn't have to be done by you, but you, as you assume it might be resistant and they might fail and have still eight, no symptoms, but have asymptomatic gonorrhea that's still there. So they need another PCR test or a culture done in a week or maybe two weeks, okay? So if they, don't need, if they don't need that, if they get the ceftriaxone, you don't need to say you need a test of cure. Okay. Could you use uh, gentamicin? Um, gentamicin, yes. That's not recommended in any CDC guideline. But I'm very familiar with that because gentamicin was very effective in resistant gonorrhea in the 1970s and 80s in the Southeast Asia when they had a lot of resistance. And so they do use gentamicin, usually a dose of 240 milligrams IM once, to treat gonorrhea as the empiric treatment in a lot of Africa and Southeast Asia because they have resistance to a lot of drugs and the ceftriaxone is too expensive. 
and there's resistance rising, so it's cheap. So, but about 5% right now are resistant. And so uh, I don't know why the CDC doesn't say this in their guidelines. They don't even mention it. And if you look it up carefully, there's lots of studies on genomycin for gonorrhea uh, in Europe and Japan and Southeast Asia, and it's very successful. Uh, but I think they're, they, don't even, they don't want general physicians to start using it because they're afraid that they're going to start using it and, and get resistant to that. But that could be a choice of, so if you're giving genomycin to somebody for some other reason, which is possibly like pilo and they might have gonorrhea, that's probably covering it pretty well, where you're testing for it. You probably don't need ceftriaxone. I'm going to speed up a little here. This is disseminated gonococcemia. So something we don't see very often, this is when we took out, we had taken this fluid out of her joint because she had a septic arthritis. But I want to mention that I've been called some time to go see a patient in our ED with DGI that another attending thought had it, and they have like a big abscess. They never have that. They're all little pustules like this. They're never bigger. If they've been there for a few days, they, uh, they get black in the middle or around the sides because it's actually an immune complex disease. There's very few gonorrhea in each of these pustules. Show you some more here. This is a different patient. See rare pustules. They're all small. If you've got it close to their pustules. They don't really hurt. It, it don't, you press on them, nothing comes out. The gram stain's negative for everything. Uh, they're not, the patients are not sick looking. If they're really sick with this, it's probably Staph aureus bacteremia. If, the only thing they're sick from, if they, if they could have septic arthritis at the same time, the, the, the joint would hurt, but they wouldn't be like toxic appearing. So they usually walk in, okay, unless they have septic arthritis, then they're hobbling on their, their knees bad. They, tend, they could have a low grade temperature or no temperature, and they tend to not have any signs of the primary infection at the site in the cervix or the urethra. It's there, but asymptomatic. Here's another patient. See, this is a woman with DGI proven. Uh, there's her lesion. Those are the only lesions on her body. But she had tenosynovitis of the ankle, asymmetric, like ankle and a wrist, different weeks. So you have to have a high clinical suspicion. She had no symptoms of that, but she had gonorrhea of the, cer of the cervix on a culture we did. And her boyfriend pulled down his pants in the room for me, and he had gonorrhea prelent discharge and his girlfriend didn't know about it. And this is the case I sometimes will show in my ST lecture. They're having an argument over their sexual partners after he pulled his pants down and showed me, well, in front of the girl. So we're able to diagnose the girl clinically based on the man's exam and right in the curtain in bed 10, I remember this. And then we proved it later on the woman by getting it out of her blood. She wasn't sick looking, it grew out of her blood and it grew out of her cervix. But you could tell on the male just had a drip just like that first person and his yellow, pants were yellow underwear and he hadn't told his girlfriend. <laughs> and they figured out that he'd, he'd slept with another girl at a party about three weeks, several weeks earlier. So I think that ended their relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another girl that, where this is, so they're small pustules, so they're on the extremities, they're not on the trunk. If there are any on the trunk, they're much more on the extremities and they're only like two to 20 lesions, symmetrical. So, uh, it's not going to be like a few pustules on the trunk or face. It's going to be distal extremities, could be the hands, and only a few, and there tend to be not to be symptomatic. I don't know if you've ever seen any. Mark probably has seen a few, but I don't know if you've ever seen. This is very rare, so if you call me to see a patient with it, they probably don't have it. Uh, especially, so I've been called some time for an ab Somebody has two abscesses. They're like this big. That's not that. It's all tiny, tiny pustules. So gonococcal conjunctivitis, remember, it's going to be, at least it's going to start out unilateral. It could become bilateral. But the, uh, 
get from auto-inoculation, and this actually is a patient with regular conjunctivitis. But they usually are carrying around, they have giant amounts of pus just pouring out. So you can do a rapid gram stain and see the gram-negative diplococci. But you probably should also do a culture on this media, or you can do a PCR test. But what's the treatment? It's fairly benign. Uh, it's one gram of ceftriaxone IM once. It's one gram once. But the bad, what's the bad thing for, if you're lecturing on ophthalmologic emergencies, why is gynecological conjunctivitis worse than other kinds? There's a reason, it could be on board exams, is that it could cause rapid, uh, a corneal ulcer rapidly develops and perforates the cornea. But it tends to happen before they come for treatment, not after. So once they get the treatment, they're probably okay. But they often could present with a rapid onset of, of a perforated cornea. Okay, it's about the only organism which could rapidly perforate the cornea. So that's often on a board exam. And you, could, you don't need to admit them for this. I usually consider calling an ophthalmologist because it's interesting, especially at a teaching center, for them to see that. And then we could do cultures and give them the one gram treatment, watch them a while, and get follow-up in the opto clinic in two or three days. And then contact their sexual partners. So I'm going to go, yeah. Well, a perforation, you'd see a, probably see a uh, hypopion, where it's a layer of pus in the anterior chamber, like you might see sometime with iritis. The vision is really bad, you know, so the, the cornea, often you see it's cloudy because there's pus underneath it in the aqueous, okay? It's usually pretty easy that you're not going to, you're going to think it's really bad and you're going to call an ophthalmologist if you're not sure. So I'm going to go on to chlamydia, and I'm not going to talk as much about chlamydia. So another... Uh, Another poster from the department, of, the War Department of World War II. VD is not V for victory, okay. Uh, so chlamydia, I'm not going to talk as much about this because I mentioned something about it. But remember, it's extremely common among young females, especially females under 23 who are sexually active, have a high rate of having sex with older men who are like 25 or 30, and especially in certain parts of the of the society, and they have a high rate of asymptomatic chlamydia. So I think any time you're going to do a pelvic exam uh, with a bimanual, with a speculum exam on a female who's like especially under 25 with no symptoms, like they're spotting or something, you're not sure, I would screen them for chlamydia on the cervix doing the PCR test. Uh, if someone's 35, it isn't necessarily important to do that. They're less likely to have, have chlamydia. Uh, although they certainly could. This is without PID, just they're doing it for some other reason. Okay? You should screen them. In fact, about men, though, um, they've looked at uh, juvenile delinquents who are like inmates at various juvenile facilities uh, who are like you know, 15 to 18-year-old boys, like criminals or something. They, and they screen them where chlamydia is like 15 or 20% habit. They have no symptoms. So you might consider males who come from the juvenile hall. They might have asymptomatic chlamydia. Uh, so here's another question about, here's a question for chlamydia. How about Erica? Can you want to answer this one? Which one of the following best describes the clinical signs and symptoms of chlamydia urethral infection in men? Yellow discharge from the penis, dysuria, scrotal pain, or most men screened or asymptomatic? Which is the best single answer there? Yeah, most men screened are asymptomatic. Obviously, they don't come in saying I, I, I'm asymptomatic. They're not going to be tested. But they, they, don't, they, they rarely get a yellow discharge. Usually, it's so clear. They can have dysuria, scrotal pain with epididymitis, but they're more likely to have no symptoms of it. Uh, so most men screened are asymptomatic. So uh, 
the majority, as I said, are asymptomatic. The discharge tends to be clear and mucoid, and the incubation period is probably pretty short, five or ten days. So here's an example of a, it's sort of a mucoid discharge from the penis here, not so much the thick yellow. So complications, epididymitis is probably a more common complication of chlamydia than is gonorrhea, probably because chlamydia is more common. And remember, which uh, quinolones are active against chlamydia? Is it Cipro, Ofloxacin, or Levofloxacin? What? Yes, not, not Cipro. And Reiter's syndrome is a complication too. And a few chlamydia questions, and I think I'll be done with chlamydia before I go into ulcers. Uh, let's ask, uh, oh, Shahina, I haven't called on you yet. Yeah. You're all fresh and smiling there. So which of the following best describes the <laughs> clinical signs and symptoms of chlamydia infection in women? Most women complain of a discharge. Most women complain of urinary symptoms. Clinical signs and symptoms depend on the duration of infection, and most women are asymptomatic. It should be pretty simple, right? Which is the correct one? The best and single answer. What? D. D, yes. Most women are asymptomatic. So I mentioned that earlier. So, so remember, they're asymptomatic in males and females, most common, right? Unlike gonorrhea, it's more commonly symptomatic in males. Okay? And PID complication, I'm not going to talk about this because it's more of an OBGYN month. But remember, Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome is usually caused by chlamydia, not by gonorrhea. Remember what that is. You see violent string adhesions on laparoscopy between the the liver surface and the peritoneal cavity, and can cause uh, low-grade hepatitis. So, here, yes? Do you have any pearls for trying to track down the and Well, you can only make the diagnosis on laparoscopy, yeah. and the gynecologists usually know that, and they know that chlamydia is the more common cause, so the, usually you can't tell. And so you try to get cultures or PCRs from all the sites from which it could get there from. So it's always going to be at a primary site. So in women, they should have it at the cervix at the same time. And as far as I'm aware, almost every woman will have PID on exam and symptoms at the time they have the Fitzhugh-Curtis, although it may not be very high-grade PID, but they should have cervicitis on exam, and they should have uh, CMT and or adnexal tenderness even though they don't complain of it. They may complain more of the liver pain than the, the PID pain. So then you could just treat them empirically, I suppose. It doesn't necessarily need more than one dose. So say their LFTs are bumped at that point. And then they could be totally normal. Or they're normal, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a rare thing, so I don't know what to tell you. You could cast a gynecology to uh, laparoscope them. They, they sometimes will do it for unexplained abdominal pain because it could be something else like endometriosis or something. So you have to have a, a physical presentation that is someone you wouldn't want to send home, basically, that's what you're saying. Yeah, otherwise you could. If you, want to, you could treat them empirically, I suppose, after getting cultures and then the primary sites and then send them out and have good follow-up with a gynecologist. Uh, so let's do this. Here's the, uh, another question. Uh, who wants this one? How about uh, Wes? Uh, this is pretty easy here. Chlamydia questions. The CD recommended treatment of choice for uncomplicated genital chlamydia infection, forgetting the gonorrhea part, is amoxicillin, 500 milligrams three times a day, tetracycline, 250 milligrams four times a day, azithromycin, one gram oil in a single dose, or the doxy twice a day, or erythromycin, 250 orally four times a day for 14 days. Uh, right. <laughs> so the wrong thing about the other ones, they have the wrong dose. You could use tetracycline instead of doxy, that bigger dose. 
or the urethro at 500, but that's the wrong dose, okay. So chlamydia is not becoming resistant to antibiotics. It's still sensitive to the macrolides, uh, doxycycline or the tetracyclines, as well as those quinolones I mentioned. So here's what the CDC recommends for alternatives. If you don't want to give these drugs, you could give high-dose erythromycin, a lot of vomiting with that, or you could give those two quinolones, but not Cipro. So now we're going to genital ulcers. This is a, patient, a picture of a patient I took in ED. He's a healthy male who's heterosexual only. Uh, he has several girlfriends. He's not there with a sexual partner, I think. Uh, he's, un, he's circumcised, and he presents with a very painful ulcer on his penis right there. It's hard to tell, but that's a shallow ulcer about this big. And if you look carefully and get really close, you can see that there are vesicles around it, several areas, but that's the only ulcer. He has a fever, 38.1. He said he's had some fevers and chills. He doesn't look ill, though. His other vital signs are normal, and he has tender inguinal nodes bilaterally, but no other lymphadenopathy and no other ulcers. Uh, so let's take, uh, how about, you want to you take this case? What are you going to do now for this patient? So his other history is negative, no medications, never had anything like this before. He said he only has sex with females. Culture it. For what? It's an ulcer, right? So, okay, culture it for herpes simplex. How would you do that? Zank smear. No, that's not a culture. Don't ever do a zank smear. It's outmoded and it should have gone out. And if it's ever in a test question, it's always wrong. PCR. Uh, you take a viral culture swab for a PCR or a culture. It's the same thing, one of these green swabs, viral culture. So you're going to swab it. So herpes simplex is like a bacteria in that it grows really fast on a virus. So when you go to order it in a computer, you order herpes culture, not viral culture. It's different because they only put on one cell media. You're not looking for other things. And so it grows in two to four days, and you have an answer of type 1 or type 2. Also, the new test we have for PCR, for, they'll now do it on ulcer-related lesions, unlike just the cervix when we used to do it in the past, or on urine. And uh, it's also, we'll tell you what's, whether it's type 1 or type 2. Okay, so you check for herpes. You're not going to get an answer right away. It's going to take like two to four days to get it read. So anything else? So he has vesicles, so he probably has herpes, right? So what, could he get choir or anything else at the same time that causes a genital ulcer? Um, what else causes genital ulcers besides herpes? Huh? HPV, and yeah, usually ulcers. I think he needs some help. Uh, Rod, any help? That's a possibility. Uh, how many cases were there in California of chancroid in 2010? Five. Five. So it's very rare. There's a much more likely thing. It's still likely to be herpes causing the ulcer, that there probably were a bunch of vesicles there that ulcerated into one big ulcer. That's the more likely thing, but you've got to check for syphilis. It's still quite common STD, and it could have acquired both at the same time. So in this case, he had just herpes, but you should always check for syphilis. So what, how would you check for syphilis, primary syphilis? No. You can't order that at UCI anymore. We have a new test. I'm going to mention the new test we have at UCI. They changed over our testing. If you had a test question, though, they'd probably put RPR. That'd be acceptable. But at the UCI lab, you can't even order it. They change over our testing, and I'll show you in a minute what that is. So you want a serologic test for syphilis. What about a dark field exam to see the spirochetes? That would be probably, if that's on a test, that's appropriate. But UCI used to have a dark field microscopist. And they don't anymore. It's pretty outmoded, so you probably can't order it.
I mean, you can't get it at UCI or any hospital anymore. But if it's on a test question, that's good. It, some places can do it. So you actually would take some of the fluid, like scrape the base of the ulcer, and you put it on a sl uh, you put it like a cover under a cover slip. Usually the microtech would actually come and obtain it from the patient when we did this. And they would take it back to the micro lab and look right away for the spirochetes moving around. And usually it would be positive. But it's, it's too, it's very labor intensive and it requires a lot of experience. They don't do it anymore. So you could do the serologic test for syphilis. There's a few places that have a non-FDA approved rapid molecular, not a, a molecular test from a scraping, but we don't have that at UCI. It's not FDA approved. So serologic test for syphilis. Okay, then, so you think he has herpes. Let's say you're going to send the serial, so you're probably going to discharge him. What about having all? His, what about all these systemic symptoms? A fever. He has a fever, uh, and he has tender lingual nodes. Is that unusual for herpes? It's common for primary herpes. Yeah, it's very consistent with it. Okay. So what about treatment? Well, you're going to discharge him probably on some treatment. If he's got insurance, I'll give him Valtrex. If he doesn't, it's a cyclovir. Um, that's that's acceptable. I'll show you that I probably prefer the acyclovir anyway because you don't know what his health plan whether it actually covers it. So here's the here's some of the causes of this genital ulcer adenopathy syndrome. So the most common you have to think about is herpes, 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 and then later syphilis. Chancroid's way down in the list. Oops, uh, go back again. Uh, Chancroid is it does occur, but it's pretty rare, and it can mimic herpes because you have fever and inguinal adenopathy sometimes. And I'll show you a picture of that later. LGV is extremely rare in the United States. So I would probably not make a diagnosis of it without it being an expert uh, because it's usually seen in New Orleans among people coming in from the Caribbean or somebody just came from New Guinea. It's very rare in the United States. And it's hard to diagnose clinically uh, or with any tests because the, the serology test cross-reacts with the other chlamydia. So you can also see painful ulcers from pubic lice or they're biting you, scabies too, especially pruritic papules with ulcers, trauma, uh, and fixed drug reactions, Reiter's syndrome and Bechet, sort of rare, but you can't see it with that. And you commonly can have co-infection with one or more of the organisms, five or ten percent. Usually it's herpes with syphilis or with one of these other ones, but not LGV or chancroid. So genital herpes is very common disease. It's, so this is, when you talk to patients who are diagnosed with this, this is like one of the most devastating things they could be told in their life because they have it for life. You could get rid of syphilis with one dose of penicillin and gonorrhea, chlamydia could cure it, but herpes, you've got genital herpes for the rest of your life. And you could transmit it without having any symptoms or outbreak. Okay? So it's never safe. So you're, you're, you're sort of scarred for life. So the majority of genital herpes is HSV2, but it's only about 70%. 70 or 20 or 30% is HSV1. And one of the reasons for doing a culture or the PCR test is to tell the patient what kind they have because it makes a big difference. If they have HSV-1 and genital herpes, it's much less likely to recur, and if it does, it's more likely to be a less serious recurrence. So uh, it's probably more important for diagnosis to do the test at least once in the patient so they know what kind they have. It's, it's very, very common. So let's ask you a question. Here's a herpes question. Uh, Austin, you want to take this one? Which of the following statements is true about the prevalence and incidence of HSV-2? At least 50 million persons in the U.S. have genital HSV. Uh, most people with HSV-2 have not been diagnosed. In the general population, 70% of adults aged 14 to 49 have HSV-2B antibodies, or all of the above. Sound like these are sort of weird, so they probably all together with all of the above. It's sort of hard, but what do you think? Just go for all the above. Yeah, right, all of the above. So it's very common. 
A lot of people, so if you look at these 70% of adults who have the antibodies, most of them will say they never had an outbreak. They have genital herpes, they never had an outbreak, but they get transmitted. So background, it's very common, you see 70% of adults, and the antibodies are, you don't get them until you have become sexually active. It's higher rate in women than men. Uh, so here's a herpes question. Asked to answer this one, this might be harder. In most cases of sexual transmission of genital herpes, the source patient case is asymptomatic at the time of transmission. True. True. Asymptomatic. So you get it from an asymptomatic source. Okay. So you have to have an open sore or something. To no. You could transmit it without. You could have shedding of HSV type one or two, with no lesions and no symptoms. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it's less common, but you can have asymptomatic shedding, and it's usually around the genital area or the perianal area. You don't have to just, just sit in there. It comes out from the nerves. It's on the skin. So uh, here's another herpes question. Uh, let's uh, have uh, anybody. Oh, Karen, how about this one? Uh, all the following are true of asymptomatic viral shedding except one. So one is false, right? Uh, asymptomatic shedding occurs if most and all HSV2 seropositive patients. Rates of asymptomatic shedding are greater with HSV1 than 2. What did I just say about that? So uh, rates of asymptomatic shedding with HSV2 are highest in early infection decrease over time. And the most common sites of asymptomatic shedding are vulva, perineal area in women, penile skin, and perineal area in men. So you said that 2 sheds more than... Right, so that's wrong. So that's the correct answer here, but that's the wrong statement, yes. Okay, so I'm getting near the end on herpes here. Uh, so herpes, primary herpes is a bad disease because you have a lot of systemic symptoms. Uh, if you don't have those, it's probably recurrent herpes. They never realize they had an outbreak the first time. Uh, so they have multiple lesions. They tend to be severe, last longer, could be last several weeks. Typical progression is papules to vesicles to pustules, ulcers. Sometimes they don't come in until they have the ulcer. And crusts and heals over a few weeks. Systemic symptoms, regional lymphadenopathy, malaise are common. And first episode also without treatment, the, 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 the new lesions will keep coming on for 11 or 12 days before they start to heal. Whereas recurrent, is they come on like over one or two days. Local symptoms, again, it can even cause itching as well as pain. And the sh they could actually shed a lot over 12 days, and then it becomes less likely to shed, but it's still there. And cervicitis is also common in primary HSV2, and there may not be any symptoms of that sometime in females. Uh, okay, so here's, this is primary herpes in a male and a female. So you can see this was, he had systemic symptoms. There's a big ulcer, which is probably a uh, coalescence of a lot of vesicles, which have ruptured, and there's some surrounding vesicles. This is like the picture I saw. This could also have been syphilis there with surrounding herpes. And this is a female. Usually with a female, you often don't see the vesicles because the skin's rubbing here in the vulva. The vesicles rupture and you get just one giant ulcer going all the way around. So there's so much herpes in here that you could just, you just roll your viral swab over it, or like over several areas, it's going to be highly, or your PCR is going to show it. Okay. So here's another question for, uh, uh, do you want to answer this one, Dina? Which of the following statements is true about transmission of HSV? The average incubation period is 10 days. Likelihood of transmission does not change with increased duration of infection. HIV is readily inactivated drying in soap and water. And most sexual transmission occurs while the source contact patient is asymptomatic. Looks like A is 
So incubation period is usually shorter. Okay. Ten days is possible. This is sort of a trick question. It could be. It's usually shorter. Um, the longer you have it, the less likely you are to transmit it. But it still happens. But you're more likely to transmit it uh, early on. Uh, and most sexual admission occurs where the source contact is uh, actually asymptomatic. Yeah. I'm not sure if I have that one right. But I know that's the, the, it is an activated drying in soap and water. Okay, so you don't usually get it from a toilet seat or something unless you sit down right after somebody was there like 30 seconds earlier and get a mucosal service involved there. That's not true of patients though, right? What? Because I mean, the answer being C. Right? In, in that, um, that transmission, it's not transmitted well. Like if it's on a patient. No, it's not the patient's penis that needs to be dry. It's <laughs> like the surfaces. So it's not it's not con it's not contracted usually from environmental surfaces. Okay, okay. So here's genital. This is a little later, so you could see that there's these are some vesicles, but they could be papules. This could you could mistake this for scabies if it's uh, pruritic. Okay, and then here's genital herpes, multiple lesions. You don't see any vesicles. This could be mistaken for syphilis or chancroid. Okay. And then herpes can be on the buttock in the area. You can get genital herpes coming back in the buttock, recurrent or primary. Okay? And so how do you detect it? Uh, we used to commonly do a, D, a direct fluorescent antibody test where we'd scrape the base of the vesicle we'd, or the uh, ulcer with a needle. It wouldn't really hurt because you're scraping the surface. You put it on a slide and send it to the lab, and they would do a DFA test on it. And like, the next day, they'd tell you if it's herpes simplex, type 1 or 2. Uh, they, you can do that now at UCI. It, it, they can do the test right away, but they tend to only do it like once a day in business hours. And it's uh, pretty good in the healing stage. But now we have a, so don't ever do a Zank prep. It's way too outmoded, and it, it doesn't really help you. Uh, so what we do now at UCI, they just started doing this on genital swabs, is doing the, which they used to do on, they do it on spinal fluid. They've had the same test. Now they're accepting it on vesicle fluid or genital swabs. So you go to the lab, you go to the lab order screen and order like PCR, herpes and it's very sensitive. Put it on a viral culture swab and transmit in the viral culture media just like this one. You could also order a culture at the same time. Um, you could probably just do one or the other because you could, either one tells you what type it is and you don't care about resistance to antivirals. So, uh, so you can do it from multiple sites. Uh, the throat, in primary herpes type 1 for example, it could be really serious in the throat and you could do a throat culture for that. Skin lesion, mucosal urethra, vagina, endocervix. So. Okay, so antiviral medications. So let's go on the medications. Yes? If you're going to do like a, a full-on collect it from everywhere, do you send each one individually or do you put them all in the same? No, I would collect it individually, but I'm not sure I'd collect it from just one spot. But sometimes they only have it. You could have HSV primary in the throat from oral sex. So would you send each one as an individual? Uh, yes, but I'm not sure I'd do all of it on, on the same patient. I'd probably just do one site that's symptomatic because it's so sensitive it's going to show it. So let's go on to the treatment. So there's three drugs we could use. Uh, acyclovir is about uh, one-fifth the cost of the other generic. The others, they're all generic. But they caught, the generic brands cost about five times as much per pill as the acyclovir generic. So uh, I would not recommend famcyclovir. It's perfectly acceptable, but I found that some like insurance plans, even Blue Cross, don't cover it. They cover like valcyclovir with a high deductible and acyclovir with like a $5. So uh, 
I would recommend sticking with acyclovir unless you know the patient's health plan or they can afford the valcyclovir, which is less times a day. But I'd probably stay away from the famcyclovir. Don't use any topical treatment. I'll show you what the doses are in a minute. So acyclovir comes in three kind of strengths, 200, 400, and 800. And they're all about the same price, generic. And so you'd give, if you're going to give that, don't give 200 milligrams five times a day. Give the 400 three times a day for seven to 10 days. Okay, it's very cheap. It's about a dollar. It's about 50 cents a tablet, though. So it's a dollar 50 a day for people paying cash, assuming there's no markup, markup from the pharmacy. Okay, but the other ones are going to be like 15 dollars a day, uh, the famcyclovir and valcyclovir. Okay, at uh, these doses. And remember, the valcyclovir is twice a day, and the other famcyclovir, like acyclovir, is three times a day or five times a day with that one. So I'd recommend sticking with the 400 three times a day. Uh, so here's the question for you. Uh, which of the following is true about episodic treatment of recurrent episodes of herpes? Is it going to be the same as, the, as I mentioned on the last slide? It can ameliorate or shorten the duration of lesions. Patients should self-initiate the medication. Successful treatment requires initiation of therapy with one day of lesion onset and all, all of the above. Uh, Rod, do you want to take that question? So recurrent herpes. I haven't talked much about that. Which of the following is true about episodic treatment? Or do you want to read it? <laughs> oh, you were, didn't hear me. So never mind. I should ask somebody else. You were probably sleeping. D, all of the above. Okay, D. Matt's away. Okay, D, all of the above. So that means that it is good to... So if you're seeing somebody with primary herpes or any outbreak where it's recurrent, you should always write for a refill and say, as soon as you're done with this, fill it and have the bottle of, of your acyclovir at home. And as soon as you feel a little, before you get a lesion, feel tingling or itching or a little pain at the site, start it, taking it right then. And then you don't have to come in, you'll abort the episode, and you may get one day of lesions. If you wait too long, it, it, it won't help. Okay, so they should have it at home. So with recurrent infection, they feel prodromal symptoms, which last a few hours, maybe up to 24 hours. The illness is much shorter. There's no systemic symptoms with recurrent herpes. And the HSV2 primary is more likely to recur, okay? So episodic treatment does shorten the duration. You have to give it early, and they should have a supply at home, okay? So counseling. Uh, these people want counseling, or they should get it, maybe from their own doctor, about preventing recurrences. And so if they get a lot of recurrences, they can take continuous treatment. It's actually at a lower dose. You could take like icyclovir like twice a day or valcyclovir once a day, and it, you could prevent the the outbreaks uh, markedly, not completely. And but it turns out, though, even while you're taking the drug, you can still have some asymptomatic shedding. So even though it lessens the chance of transmission, it doesn't absolutely make it zero. So let's go on to syphilis. I won't spend too much time on this. So here's a patient with primary syphilis. So what, and he has, uh, what, what other symptoms would you suspect in primary syphilis besides a genital ulcer? And would this be painful or painless? Would there be fever? Would there be any regional or generalized adenopathy? And is that adenopathy painful or, or non-painful? So let's talk about the ulcer. You could have multiple ulcers. And are they painful or not? So for a test question, you should answer painless. But for an actual practice, if you look at the, st the statistics, it's like 60% are painless and 40% are painful. So. I've seen documented painful syphilis ulcers. And so if for a test question, it's painless. But in clinical practice, it could be anything, herpes or chancroid or, or syphilis. So I would test for it. And what about systemic symptoms in primary 
uh, syphilis. Would you have fever or chills? Uh, usually not. It's possible to get low-grade fevers, but you don't really look sick with it. What about generalized lymphadenopathy? No, but you do get that in secondary syphilis. What about regional lymphadenopathy in the groin? Yes, that's almost always present, but you often don't realize it because the patient has no tenderness or pain. It's non-tender inguinal adenopathy, usually bilateral, so you have to feel it, and they don't really complain of it like they do for herpes or chancroy when it's actually really tender. So that, that would, uh, but either way, you know, if they had a high fever with this, you could also think they have, they have herpes too. So you test for both. So then you'd want a serologic test for syphilis. Oh, here's all, syphilis again, multiple ulcers. Multiple. So primary syphilis, you get a primary chancre, they call it. It tends to be painless, but it, it indurated with a clean base, but still can be painful in some cases, and it may indicate that it's secondary infection from like skin bacteria. It's highly infectious at that site. There's, it's teeming with spirochetes. Uh, and so you can even get, even normal skin can get infected. So if, if an examiner or a partner touched their finger to it, without a lesion on the finger, they could get a primary chancre of the finger. You don't have to have broken skin like you might for herpes or something like that. So regional adenopathy is common, but it's usually painless, rubbery, and bilateral. And you may not have a positive test for syphilis. The serologic test, you'd send that off, but you have, it may not be positive, and you need a repeat test in a, like two weeks or six weeks two to six weeks. Darkfield exam we used to do is no longer available. But if you had a test question they asked that, that would be an answer to do a dark field exam. So here's what we use at UCI. They changed the way we order syphilis serologies uh, like earlier this year or last year. So it's, if you type in syphilis, it comes up as this. And there's no other test you can order unless it's spinal fluid. So you can't order an RPR anymore. So the way they do this, it's an enzyme immunoassay. It's a new test. It's very sensitive but it has some nonspecific false positives. So they do the test. If it's negative, you're done. And the only way is to repeat it serially to see if they turn positive. You don't need to add another test onto that. So if it's positive, they automatically do a RPR on the same specimen, like the next business day, and they report it tighter, like 1 to 8 or 0 or 1 to 2 or 1 to 5, 12 or something. And that's quantitative. And then, so that's the end of that. And if it's negative, though, you need to keep repeating it until it turns positive in a few weeks. And you can only order a VDRL on spinal fluid at UCI. They won't allow you to order on the blood. So here's some secondary complications. I took this picture in room 26. It's a heterosexual male. He, has no he said he has no male partners. Uh, he's a cross-country truck driver. So he presented with these painless, well, they were painful when he sat down on them. He has these moist raised plaques. If you touch them with a gloved hand, uh, they're uh, moist. They're, you can move them around. There's no ulcers. They're a little bit tender when you press hard. They're sort of soft, but they're not fluctuant. And he only has them in this area, a sort of moist area. He denies any other symptoms. So that was his complaint. So uh, he was seen by a female resident in room 26 who came back to me and said, Dr. Burns, I have a patient with venereal warts. You want to take a look before we discharge him to the germ clinic? So yeah, I went and talked to him. And he said, how long have you had that for? Oh, about two weeks. So venereal warts, kind of a little bit human. I'll show some pictures. That would take, to get this big, would take about two or three years. So I knew right away it can't be that. So this, and then I asked him a few more questions. He denied everything to the female resident. Uh, I was thinking of syphilis. So I asked him, and I knew he was a single male cross-country truck driver. He said he had only female partners. 
Uh, it hurt to sit down. That's why he came in when he was driving his truck. So I asked him, do you ever have a penile ulcer? And he said, yeah, uh, six weeks ago I had an ulcer for two weeks. It was painless. I didn't go to a doctor. He hadn't told the other resident that. Who didn't ask him specifically about that? So we did a dark field exam, and this was the 1990s, and it was highly positive. So these are highly contagious lesions. This is called what? Condylomatolata, secondary syphilis. So it occurs in moist areas. It could be under the armpits. It could be under the breasts of women with pendulous breasts where it's sort of moist. Usually in the genital areas like this. Uh, sometime in the mouth areas, but usually there. So it's highly, this is the most contagious lesion of syphilis. So uh, be careful about touching that without a glove on. Okay. And it doesn't go through the air. So secondary syphilis. This is often commonly misdiagnosed in the ED. Uh, so the primary lesion is usually healed, but there could be some overlap. And you, get, you can get mucocutaneous lesions at the same time. Rash is very common. In fact, it's usually present with rash. So you have a rash 100% of the time in most of these cases. And lymphadenopathy now, they have lymphadenopathy that's generalized, but it doesn't hurt. So you have to ask them and feel the lymph nodes. They don't say, oh, I noticed big lymph nodes, because they don't notice it. You feel their lymph nodes are all enlarged. And that, that guy showed with the condylomalata, he had big lymph nodes all over. They were palpable in every part of his body, but he had no complaint of it. Didn't bother him. And so they often get some malaise. They tend not to get fever. Condylomalata is not that common. Usually it's mainly a rash. And so the serologic test for syphilis is 100% positive at this stage with the rash. 100%. But you, unfortunately, you can't get it for a business day, so you, can't, you don't know at the time. So here's a patient. I saw in bed six. I still remember this guy from like 1995 or something. He, has, he had been cured of Hodgkin's disease like 15 years ago. So he has a scar and he has a radiation ports, but he's like well for 15 years. So he presents with this very pruritic rash, maculopapular rash without vesicles. It's on his whole body, including his palms and soles. So on the first day he came to the ED, the residents and attending said it's obviously an allergic reaction. They gave him Benadryl. He came back two days later with the rash was the same, itchy. And they added Atarax. It's obviously an allergic reaction. So he came back two days later when I was on. So I took a better history. Notice he has lesions on the palms and soles, which he had before. He had no oral lesions. And uh, what's the history, I would ask him? Have you ever had a sore in your Yeah, he said no. Many years ago? Uh, he wasn't clear about that. Discharge? What? No, he didn't have a discharge. But I asked him, he, was, he and I were the only ones in the room, we closed the curtain. I said, uh, when was the last time, I said, when was the last time you had sex with a man? Ask him outright. And he said, well, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm gay. I have sex with men all the time. I didn't ask him, does he have it? I asked him, when was the last time? And he usually admitted it right away. So then it's secondary syphilis. So yeah, his RPR was 1 to 512. I made the microlab do its stat. So I had a stat answer. They can, that, the test for the RPR at that time we were doing, it takes five minutes to do the test. But at UCI, it's done once during the day in a business day. I made them do its stat because I'm one of the ID attendings, and they did it, and it was 1 to 512. So I had an answer. This is very pruritic, and it's not an allergic reaction. So you have a man who has sex with men, who's a young male with a strange rash that's not vesicular, you should always think of secondary syphilis because it's easy to treat, easy to diagnose because the test on the blood is 100% sensitive. And palms and soles, is, see that's where you had the lesions. So here's more secondary syphilis. That's a patient I took out of a book or something. But this one is an ED patient, dark-skinned lady with these scattered, non-pruritic 
papules and macules. This is secondary syphilis in a female. This is proteriasis rosea. So you can be mistaken. So if you ever diagnose proteriasis rosea, make sure you do a cervical test for syphilis. But this, this is proteriasis rosea. Uh, secondary syphilis, I took this picture in 82 in a patient, a young male sexually active with female prostitutes. He has only a rash. It's on his palms and soles. Secondary syphilis. Again, this is secondary syphilis. Two different people showing the brownish macular rash and sort of dry papular squamous lesions palms and soles, and just a scattered dark, sort of a dark rash on his body. Looks pretty well. Secondary syphilis again. Secondary syphilis. This is a female HIV positive whose CD4 count is high. She's on retroviral treatment. So it looks like psoriasis with satellite plaques. Uh, but she said I only had this for like six weeks. This is syphilis, secondary syphilis. So secondary syphilis can have any kind of rash except vesicular. Can mimic pterosis rosea, allergic reaction, psoriasis. Of course, it's not going to be lifelong psoriasis. It's going to be like short term. Uh, and so, but it's never vesicular. So getting serologic tests for syphilis in sexually active young adults with multiple partners is a good idea just to get the test because it's easy to treat and it's potentially something they could give to other people. So what's the treatment for syphilis? You can look this up. It's bicillin, benzathine penicillin once. Now, this is the problem where we've had medication errors in our ED. When we order this, especially when we had written orders, when we didn't have the computer, we'd write it out correctly. The nurse would, would look in our refrigerator of our ED, and we'd have several types of injectable penicillin, and she wouldn't read it correctly, and she'd get out. She'd actually document in the nursing note she gave bicillin, and you look at the syringe, and it says aqueous crystalline penicillin G, or it says procaine penicillin. So you've got to read the fine print. And if you're ever ordering this penicillin dose, uh, right now I think it comes from the pharmacy. But we used to stock this because we used to use this a lot for gonorrhea and syphilis and strep throat. But it's easily making it, nurse makes a medication error because they don't read the fine print. It says bicillin LA and on very small print it says benzathine penicillin. There's also one with procaine penicillin as a combination. You don't want that either. So I would recommend you try to look at the syringe every time you order this before the nurse gives it. Or if they gave it, look at it afterward to make sure it's the right kind. Because you don't want to give aqueous crystalline penicillin, which is the IV form, which you can give IM safely, or the procaine penicillin, unless you're giving it once daily for like two weeks. So if they're penallergic, this is a big problem because you're not sure you could cure them with doxycycline or tetracycline. They need to be carefully followed if they have doxycycline. But that's the alternative. So they probably would need, I would probably say if you diagnose syphilis in the ED and treat them, you should tell them, go to the Orange County Health Department STD clinic in like two weeks and get checked out for everything. Or like next week. They have a good clinic. Everything's free. The insured patients, the problem, they go to their primary doctor. They don't have the equipment. They're better off having every patient go to their STD clinic and get follow-up. Uh, so here's, uh, let's ask a question. This is a practical question. Uh, at which stage of syphilis can neurosyphilis occur? Primary, secondary, early, latent, late, latent, unknown duration, or any stage. Uh, Wes, can you answer this? What stage of syphilis is neurosyphilis occur? And what's the most common manifestation of neurosyphilis in our in an average ED? It's not going to be tertiary syphilis, right? So the answer is going to be any stage. But remember, secondary syphilis. As a manifestation of secondary syphilis, without, without a rash, as rash hasn't occurred yet, 
in a sexually active young adult who's, who's able to get syphilis, uh, they, it presents like a viral meningitis, a, a sort of a uh, viral meningitis pattern. So they're not altered. They come in with fever, headache. Uh, their blood count's usually normal. They're otherwise healthy, except for being sexually active. They may have HIV, though. Uh, and they have a spinal tap consistent with viral meningitis. Remember always to test those people on the blood for syphilis as well as the VDRL on the spinal fluid, as long as the spinal fluid's abnormal. If it's normal, you don't need to worry about it. But so, uh, the most thing in secondary syphilis, with or without the rash, in viral meningitis, a young adult check for syphilis. It's easily treatable and you We've had cases admitted for viral meningitis and the res we didn't order the serum and they didn't order the VDRL upstairs on it. And so they don't get too much better. Finally, an ID consultant finds, well, what's the serial check for syphilis? Oh, it's like 1 to 512. They didn't do it. And they just treat them with penicillin IV or ceftriaxone and they get better. So uh, here's another syphilis question. This is a really basic. A syphilitic chancre can mimic which diseases? So which is correct? One, only one of these. Herpes and chancroid, chlamydia and herpes, PID and chlamydia, or HPV and gonorrhea? A. Oh, a. So genital ulcers. Herpes, syphilis, and chancroid being the least common. And so the CDC recommended, here's a question again, I'll go through this fast because I just answered it. The recommended treatment for its primary syphilis is C, 2.4 million units a single dose. Doxy is an alternative for people, actually that isn't even the right dose, it has to be twice a day as an alternative, not once a day. Single dose, I'm getting to the end. Okay, chancroid, this is proven chancroid, a picture I took in the ED. And I'll show you a picture of it, the penile glands in a minute with the ulcer. So remember chancroid, if you ever diagnose somebody with chancroid, in RED, it's probably really herpes. So, make, so if you're going to treat for chancroid, maybe you check for herpes because they have a painful ulcer, they have a fever, like primary herpes, and they have tender regional adenopathy in the groin like primary herpes. So make sure you, it's probably herpes, you misdiagnosed it. Um, so this was, we had a chancroid epidemic in Orange County in 1982 when I was an ID fellow. I had 2,000 cases. All but three were in males. It was transmitted by some female prostitutes in Santa Ana. They found the three of them. And there were 997 males. <laughs> and none of them spoke English. So I saw at least 100 of them because of an ID fellow at the time. So this is chancroid. So uh, Haemophilus decreia, gram-negative rod. This is very rare, it's, but it's hard to diagnose, so it's probably underdiagnosed because there's no, way to, there's no uh, way to test for it unless you're a research lab. There's no serology and it can't culture it unless you're a research lab. And there's no, there's no way to, there's no gram stain that shows anything unless you're a research lab. So uh, there are only five cases in California in 2010 reported. So let's say it's underdiagnosed and there were 20. I mean, it's really rare. Uh, the treatment though, look at the treatment, it's very easy. This is the treatment you get for most STDs, gonorrhea or chlamydia, right? So usually if you treat for some, something else, you're okay. So it's important to probably, Here's the, here's the guy, this is the, that, that first guy's ulcer, the one I just showed, though he's uncircumcised, he has a very painful penile ulcer. He had tender node on one side only and he had a fever of 38.3 or 38.6 or something. This is another patient with the same disease on the foreskin and this is another one with multiple ulcers. Uh, so they're very painful ulcers. Remember syphilis can be, in chancroid, I mean herpes can be painful too. Uh, so, uh, you probably want to do a, a test for herpes to make sure, uh, but you, it's hard to test for chancroid, so you're going to treat them anyway. And if you think it's chancroid, you might want to report them to the health department. So here's chancroid again with multiple ulcers. I'm getting near the end here. So here's, here's some things that can mimic some STDs. So a, uh, the typical case at UCI, 20 
A 30-year-old, uh, moderately obese, Hispanic male, English-speaking, grew up in Orange County, presents with uh, redness and discharge around his uncircumcised glands penis. Here you see white patches. What test do you want to do on him? It's a blood test. It's a blood sugar. As you'll find that this is the presenting feature of diabetes. There's no symptoms, but the blood sugar is like 350. So this is usually always a diabetic with Canada balanitis. And so here's another picture of Canada, like white patches. So blood sugar, remember that. You can diagnose as diabetes. Uh, so here's condyl. I took this picture in the ED. Condylomacunatum lesions, viral venereal warts. You, uh, this is for one year. See how small they are? So if it came up over like two weeks, it could be something like condylomacunatum from syphilis. But it's only there for like a year. So there's not much you can do in the ED. It should them to the STD clinic or their primary doctor or a dermatologist for this. Uh, here's another patient I took in the ED. He's a uh, man who has sex with men uh, professionally. And he has, he hasn't seen a doctor. He has binaural warts, uh, perianal. That's the same guy with close-up. He came in only because it was having too, becoming too painful to have his anal intercourse anymore. So uh, that's really bad. You can't do much about that. Uh, usually you refer him to the colorectal clinic and they do some topical treatments or surgery. It's very difficult to treat. And how about this guy? This is, I took this in the CD room. This man came in for something like a stubbed toe, and he just happened to show, oh, by the way, you want to look at my groin, everybody else does when I come in. He's had venereal warts for 25 years. He's never been treated, and he doesn't want treatment because he can still pee. And it looks like cancer, but he's had it 25 years. Venereal warts. <laughs> what? So, a few other things. Scabies. Scabies can mimic an STD. It actually can be an STD. Uh, Pruritic papules, they're very, but crusted papules, they're usually on other parts of the body. They're often around the belt line, uh, the wrists and so forth. So uh, remember, that can be an STD, so you could have it, you know, GC and chlamydia at the same time. I'm almost on here. Proctitis, differential. Gonorrhea, chlamydia, and herpes simplex are the most common types of proctitis. So you can test for that pretty easily with a PCR test on the rectum, in the perianal canal. LGV is very rare in the United States as a cause of proctitis. Syphilis does not cause proctitis, but with rectal intercourse, you can get ulcers in the perianal area, but you see an ulcer there, okay? And then last one, a couple more uh, World War II posters. Notice they're all geared toward the soldiers and not against the women soldiers. Protect yourself now. There's no medicine for regret. This was in World War II when the only, they just got penicillin in like 1944. So they're usually giving arsenic and things for syphilis. So it was pretty bad to get syphilis then. Uh, so here's the, okay, here's the final three quiz questions. Ready? No. There's three of them. Now, if you paid attention, you're probably going to get all these right. Uh, so you could just, you want to just read those? Uh, one answer is correct. And let me know when you're ready to go on the next two of them. Ready? Yep. Number two. One is correct. Ready for the next one? Which one is true? Yeah, those are false.
Okay, all done? Okay. Thank you for your attention. So if you have any unusual STDs, I don't mind you calling me anytime. I have a great interest in it. So I used to take a lot of pictures. I stopped taking the pictures because I've taken pictures of so many. There's nothing much new under the sun. So. <laughs> Thanks. He has to do something there, doesn't he? Where's BC? To, oh, there. He has to save it. He's still writing something there. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Did you call?